0: Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses, and Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and Its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses All available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American citizenship and its decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hanson today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start hillsdale.edu slash VDH.
1: Hello to our listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is the Saturday edition where we look at something a little different, usually something historical and cultural. I know that we have the Ukrainian war going on and we're going to take some time on it, but we're going to do a comparison to the Finnish, Soviet Finnish war in 1939 to 40. We have a lot on the agenda. We're going to take a little excursion into Greece and then talk a little bit about education. So we hope everybody looks forward to that. But first, let's listen to these messages, and we'll be right back.
0: Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding field of greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie and field of greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop. Of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR, at fieldofgreens.com fieldofgreens.com can't pay the irs haven't filed in a while receiving threatening letters yeah it's about to get worse the irs is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking americans like you you need warriors on your side you need tax network usa tax network usa employs brilliant strategies to solve your irs problems Quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 That's one 800 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. taxnetworkusa.com slash victor.
1: We're back. And Victor, I know that the Ukrainian war is weighing heavily on your mind. And uh, you you requested this actually today. Quite often I do this topics for our Saturday edition, but you wanted to talk a little bit about the Ukrainian war and the Finnish-Soviet war in 1939, and I think some comparison. So why don't we go ahead and just let you shoot on that,
2: well, we're trying to make sense of this February 24, 2022, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we're looking for examples. And one of the best examples that can guide us, mutatis mutandis, that's a fancy Latin expression for the necessary changes being made, i.e. across time and space, was at the end of the month, November 30th, 1939, The Soviet Union, in all of its glory, remember, this was right during its non-aggression pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact. So it was in league with Hitler, and it invaded Finland. Why did it invade Finland? Remember, Finland didn't exist for centuries as an independent, autonomous country. It was either run by Sweden or was part of Russia. And then during the Bolshevik Revolution of 1970, it broke away and got its autonomy. And there were disputed lands where there were Finnish speakers, but the Russians claimed that they were of strategic importance. They wanted them. So, sensibly, they gave an ultimatum to the Finns. This is important because it's, again, big Russia, small Ukraine, small Finland. And it was easy walkthrough, easy walkthrough expectation. And it was fierce resistance, fierce resistance. And the end, I think, is very instructive. So they invaded. They invaded with over 25 divisions. That Eventually, they had over six or 700,000 people. The population of Finn was like 3 million people. It was half the people were mobilized. That means 18 to 60 and some women. They fielded about, you know, a million and a half people. and They had... Not all in combat units, but there was a nation in arms, and they lost about 25,000 dead, wounded or missing. More than that with the casualties, but the fatalities alone were 25,000. But when Russia went in there, it was it was very stupid. It was the beginning of winter. They were high that they were now partners of Hitler. They had split up Poland, remember, in September. Even though Stalin came late, he didn't meet his demarcation points with the Nazis. He he had a lot more trouble with the Poles than the Germans attacking from the West did. But nonetheless, he thought Hitler won't say a word. He's bound in this non-aggression pact and the allies can't do anything to Hitler. So I'm just going to go take Finland. So he called in. The Finns and so I'm going to take your country. And they said, No, you're not. And he said, Well, for now, give us this, this. And they said, No. So we invaded on November 30th. And guess what? It was one of the colder winters in history, 30 or 40 below. This Finns were very well equipped. They even got weaponry. At this time, they were not in league with the Germans, so they got weaponry from the West, Britain, etc. It was a cause celeb, just like it is now with Ukraine. Everybody wanted to help the Finns. They expelled. The Soviet Union from the United Nations, just as they're calling to do something, the United Nations, the League of Nations, I should say, just as they're saying this now. And guess what? They fought all December. They fought all January. They fought all February. They could not defeat the Finns. They would they were skis, expert skiers. They'd come out of the forest. They'd go right through Russian troops. They'd machine gun. They'd mine their roads. They knew the terrain. They inflicted about Two hundred and fifty to 400,000 casualties, probably over 200,000 dead. It was just a slaughter. And then finally, Stalin took it seriously. And then in March, he really mobilized and he put a million people in there and they forced the Finns to surrender. But they had a very interesting discussion. And that was Stalin did not want to keep fighting Finland. So he made a deal with this Karl Mannerheim. And he was one of the great Finns, I guess, the greatest Finn in history. And he led the Finns counter But more importantly, he in the deal that was made, they gave up these borderlands, but they made a deal that they would not go into Russian territory no matter what the situation was. And I think Stalin had a premonition that either he was going to attack Germany or Germany was going to attack him. Fast forward, siege of Leningrad, almost four years long. Germans need the Finns, they're allies of Hitler. And he tells the Finns, you can cut off Lake Lagoda and you can attack Russia. And they said, we'll help you, but we're not setting foot in Russian soil. That was part of our agreement. And after the war, when the Germans were defeated, Finland was all alone. It was a world pariah. It had been backing the Nazis for its own survival. Stalin went to Mannerheim and said, you know what? You kept your agreement when we were on our backs. Even Stalin said, you did not take advantage of this, so we're not going to invade and crush you like we could. But you're going to be like Austria. You're going to be non-aligned, no Warsaw Pact, no NATO, and you're going to be neutral. And if you're going to do that, we'll let you go. So what does that tell us about the Ukraine war? It's the same thing that same Russian arrogance, same ignorance of Russian history that Stalin had. so does Putin. That the Russian army against the Swedes, against the French, against the Nazis, it fights superbly well on its own soil. When it goes into Finland, when it goes into Ukraine, when it goes into Afghanistan, it goes into Poland, it does not fight well. That's what the Finnish, what we know is a winter war. The second part of it you know, was the continuation war when it was around Leningrad. The second thing that's very important, and I don't know if Zelensky understands that Mannerheim never got carried away with the exuberance that he was the darling of the West, the world turned on the Soviet Union, they hated the Soviet Union because it was committing atrocities, because it had aligned itself with the hated Hitler, and because it was a big bully. But he said to himself, these people will not back me. When the winds change, I'm going to be alone and we can only rely on ourselves. And I'm not going to ask foreign countries to come in and fight the Russians, etc. And so when he resisted and he was defeated, he told, he didn't say, come and get us, kill every one of us. We're never giving up. He said, we told you, Mr. Stalin, that we will kill a lot of you want to come in, you can defeat us, but we're going to kill so many Russians. And you've got such a tenuous relationship with the Nazis. And they are going to at some point be in the ascendance. So it'd be better for us to be peaceful. And they made an agreement. After all the damage that Stalin had tried to do, they said, if we're on the ascendance, and we will be, And they predicted it. And yet Hitler was so exasperated, he flew in on Mannerheim's birthday in 1942 to beg him to close the ring around Leningrad and go in and take. He said, go take Leningrad. You can have it. Annex it. We don't want it. He said, nope, we're not getting anywhere on Russian soil. We'll get anywhere we can help you as long as we stay within the confines of Finland. So then after the war, of course, they were rewarded. The same thing, I think, with Zelensky. He can't get punch drunk and think, you know what? This is incredible. We're the world's darling. Everybody wants us to win. He is up against the same odds that three million Finns were up against, against the Soviet Union. And that's 40 million Ukrainians or 45 maybe originally versus 145 Russians. So what he should do, I think, is to tell Putin, we're never going to give up when you're in our country, but we're going to make life so miserable for you. And you're going to pay a price. Even if we can't win, it would be in your interest stop. And if you stop, we promise that we will not send Ukrainian forces into Russian territory. We will not join the West to hurt you. And we can negotiate the Donbas border regions. If they're 70 or 80% Russian and they're really as pro-Putin as you say they are, we'll let them take them. We don't want them. And maybe they'll hate you more than they hate us. And they'll want to come back. And as far as the Crimea, maybe we'll have a plebiscite or or a demilitarized zone. But there there has to be a mechanism where he can translate this short-term spectacular success into long-term strategic advantage, like Mannerham did in the Finn.
1: Yeah. So did the Finns end up with Soviets, at least Soviet administration and Soviet, you know, no. I don't know, on their soil at all? They just in surrendered the and in- then
2: in the Cold War, that- 1940.
1: Well, they no, no, to- no, 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 no. I just mean in this small war from oh, no, 39 to wa- 40. No,
2: the Winter they- War. They did not. They did not. They kept their autonomy. Mannerham kept control. The mm-hmm. Soviets agreed that if you give us these, and the irony was that the Soviets came to them and said, we want these borderlands that you took from the Bolsheviks, when you declare your independence, they said, no, they're Finnish speaking. They said, we don't care. They were the czars. They're ours. We'll let you have yours. And they said, no, come and take them. And then when it was all over, <laughs> you know, half a million people on both sides casualties, the Soviets said, see, we just want what we wanted in the beginning. And then the Finns said, take it. But if you come into Finland and we're going to keep going. So Stalin said, OK, you fought so well. We get the borderlands. You get to be an independent, autonomous country. Then they joined the Germans and the Germans, everybody thought would crush the Soviet Union. And even in July of 1941, when Hitler was bragging that Soviet and, you know, OKW was already bragging that the war would be over in 10 days, Keitel and all these people. And guess what? In a fit of triumphalism, they did not go into Soviet territory. And the Germans were furious at them. They said, only you can close the ring on Leningrad. You've got to help it. They said, nope. And then it paid dividends later on. They kept their autonomy. And we call it Finlandization. In other words, that they were neutralized by the Soviets, but they kept their autonomy. And when guess what? When the war was over and the Soviet Cold War was over, they're an independent, prosperous nation. They're very... What, a recent poll said they're the happiest people on earth?
1: Wait, they're the drunkest people on earth, aren't they? And The most depressed people on earth. (laughs) They used to say that
2: about all my friends from Reedley, California that were Finns. They're, (laughs) of all the Scandinavian peoples, I think, I'm not a linguist, a Scandinavian linguist, but they might be philologically the most akin to Swedes, but they surely had a long, long relationship as a, Finland was part of Sweden and the elite spoke Swedish and the peasant class, I suppose, mm-hmm. spoke Finnish. And Mannerheim was a really brilliant guy. I mean, he spoke Finnish and Russian and Swedish and German and French and English. And he lived to be 82, but Zelensky shouldn't model himself after him because he was, yeah. a, and he he grew up in the Tsar's army. I mean, he was a, a very successful officer under Nicholas II. And yeah. uh, so Z- Zelensky has this tendency that in his exuberance to get the Western help, he shakes his finger at people and says, "You've got to do this, and you better do this, and you're pre- and you know, what, how, you'll regret this." And I'm thinking, no. Western leaders have, uh, you know, a billion people in Europe, in the United States, and Canada, North America, that they're responsible. Do not get nuked. A billion, yeah. and we're not going to get nuked over. Your war, we're going to help you all we can, but not to the point where we're going to get nuked or get into a nuclear exchange with Russia.
1: Yeah. So the model is then that a smaller country attacked by a bigger country should fight like hell to do as much destruction to that bigger military, the bigger country that they can, but not expect help from anybody.
2: And not to confuse tactical success with strategic finality. In other words, the final verdict, if Russia wants to crush Ukraine, it can, whether it uses tactical nuclear weapons or just mobilizes every Russian there is. But Zelensky's Mannerheim example is to make it such a hell to come into Ukraine and the cost-benefit analysis, Putin will not do it, but then give Putin an out the way Mannerheim gave Stalin an out by saying, okay, the borderlands are yours. Take yeah. them, and then we'll discuss Crimea, and we'll have a plebiscite, which they would win. But they have to do that because otherwise, I mean, Mannerheim could have fought to the last fin and inflicted enormous damage on Stalin, but he would have lost.
1: Yeah. 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 So better to find the point at which you can make a deal Mm -hmm. and maintain your own autonomy. And I think they're getting
2: close. Once they achieve air parity in Ukraine, that is, they're able to knock down as many planes as they lose, maybe air superiority where they control the skies with anti-aircraft missiles, maybe air supremacy where a Russian plane can't take off. At that point, they've won. And the tactical and they need to enter strategic discussion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, Victor, let's go ahead and take a moment for some messages and come right back. And we're going to talk about the cities of Greece as models for political development. And we'll be right back.
0: Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors. No prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com/victor50 that's v i c t o r 50 and use the code victor50 that's code victor50 at factormeals.com/victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus off your next month while your subscription is active. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia Collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events. And you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Victor, I know that your training is in, obviously, in Greece and that I wanted to talk to you today on, especially since we have all of those city-states and they had so many different political forms I wanted to talk to you today and do some comparison and also just really ask why it is that Sparta and Athens became the two different political forms in the West. How does that?
2: Well, that's a good point. There were 1,500 or so city-states, and they range in size from a few hundred to 100,000 living inside the walls, and Athens probably had 100,000, maybe Syracuse had 150,000. And all of our terms for government originated from this period. So the word autocracy or the word tyranny or the word oligarchy or democracy, they all come from Greece because there was a wide spectrum of constitutional government. And what is fascinating is the two antithetical models were the most powerful for 50 years, and even more so in the cases. And one model was what the Athenians, you know, isagoria, completely free speech and equality. By that I mean each person that could fit into the ecclesia or the assembly 7,000, maybe twice a month, they had equality of expression and they could make a motion. The the agenda was referred to them by the boule and upper house, it's true. But they then would discuss and you know, if they wanted to kill everybody on Milos or if they want to send out execute males over 16 on Middlene, or they want later in that popular court kill Socrates, they can do it. There's no constitutional guardrails, in other words, other than you know, that you had to follow the supposedly the uh the bullies agenda and then they elected archons but most of the offices were by sortition this was the original equity government in other words they felt there was some kind of iron law of oligarchy maybe that when you elect people for offices as they do in the united states and europe always the wealthier or the more connected will always get elected so even though it's not foreordained that's just the law You'll get oligarchs in control of democracy. So they they use a what they call sortition, that you you were everybody served. There were twenty thousand magistries and serve and boards, and you just got your lot. And you could be an archon, everything but generals. The board of generals had to be elected. That was the most powerful job. And the primary archon, Pericles, each year had to have a vote of confidence for almost 30 years. But that was a model, and it was imperial, it was cosmopolitan, it was exciting. It had over 150 city-states abroad and on the Aegean that were subject states of the Athenian Empire, the Arche Athenaeum, the Empire of the Athenians. Okay, and so people thought, well, that's an example of what the power... Of the onwash really does, because there was a very low property qualification of the 20 to 25 or 30,000 citizens, depending on what period we adjudicate the population numbers. There was a large middle class of hoplites, there was an underclass of rowers, they had a huge imperial fleet, it was a redistributive economy. But there was an antithesis 180 miles to the south. The Spartans were not cosmopolitan Ionians, they were inwardly blinkered Dorians. They were not Democrats. They were oligarchs. They were not seafaring, cosmopolitans in that sense, but also maritime powers. Mahan's uh, doctrine that manages of sea power in history, they were hoplite armies. Everything about them was antithetical. They were landlocked. Their port was 19 miles away at Okay, so they had a very different government, but it was the really the first expression of what would become the Roman system, and from the Roman system through the Enlightenment, Montesquieu's spirit of laws, and separation of powers, and then the founders. And it was, there was an assembly, every Spartan male over the age of 18 could vote. That was a lower house, like our House of Representatives. There was the Gerousia, Gerousia is, Geron is an old man, so it's it's akin to Latin Senex, where we get Senate from. The Gerousia was their Senate. And then they had ephors that were adjudicators or overseers, kind of like a Supreme Court, made sure the laws were followed. And then they had an executive. It was a hereditary monarchy, sort of like the British system. But there was two. The Aegean kings and the Iropontids, two families that had a king, and they were the executives, but they were subject to oversight by the ephors, and indirectly by the Gerousia and the popular assembly. And that system then was what influenced, and there was a similar one in Crete, that's what influenced the Roman Republic, the res publica. It was not a democracy. So when we look at the descriptions of how this government worked, whether it was in Aristotle, or Thucydides, or later in Cicero, the consensus in antiquity was that the constitutional Republican system was more stable, and even though it was less representative, and it was less volatile, and it was less mercurial, and less exciting, but it was more long-lived. And I think you could make the argument that it was. We're not getting, I'll just finish by saying, we're not getting into the crucial area of who got to vote in Athens, there was a low property qualification. So the number of adult males who were free that were not voting was very small. In Sparta, you had to be born to two Spartan parents. And what that percentage of the resident population is probably about 40,000 people, 10,000 adult males probably voted. And everybody says, so see how restricted? Well, you start from nothing in Persia, nothing in Egypt, nothing in Gaul, nothing in Germania. So, any incremental increase in the representation is, is a progress. And so, one other thing I think it's important, they had a very different idea of exploitation. Chattel slavery is that an individual free man owns the person of another. Slav, from the Slavic word, you know, mostly a white slave, During the Ottoman period, people come from Slavia or Slovakia, and uh, that was the root of the word, but doulos is the word in Greece, and it refers to somebody who could be owned. And that was in democracy, that population of slaves might have been over 100,000. Think of it. They worked in the Athenian mines. They were potters. They were, I think I made the argument in one scholarly article that almost all every farmer of 10 acres more owned a, a slave. In Sparta, they didn't do that. They had an entire serf population in other words, they conquer the nearby and more fertile valleys of Messenia on the other side of Mount Taegetus You know, what today we know as Kalamata, Mount Nathomia, and the, the ancient Hellenistic or four, late 4th century, I should say, city of Messenia. And scholars have argued over ever since, which is more exploitive, having serfs or having slaves, which leads to quicker abolition, which is more repressive? have categories of freedom rather than just free versus slave? Can you have democracy without a slave class? Because you need to free up people for the time to participate in a pre industrial society. So the chattel slavery allowed people to be more democratic or serfs. One thing I'll leave you with is that it required if you're going to enslave 300,000 people, 250,000, who knows, in Messenia, the wealthiest farmland in the Peloponnese, then you need a police force. And that whole rite of passage and the sissotia, the group mass, and the whole grooming Spartans from you know, how to steal when they're little boys, they, and then they're separated from their families. They go into that rite of passage to be Spartan hoplites. That started out as a swat team, an internal Gestapo force to hunt down wayward serfs or helots. Helot is the Greek word helotai. Just mean those who have been taken and they were assigned a plot or family plot. And they probably had to give either somewhere between one sixth and a half of the food to Sparta. Look at the circular situation. They gave the food to Sparta. They Trucked it over, drove it over the hills. Then Spartans did not have to farm themselves to the same extent as others, so then they could practice for war. And the more they practiced for war, the more they became internal surveillance, excellent soldiers to keep that rest of population down. But the more that they were away from home on constant duty, the fewer children they had, the more emancipated women were than in Athens. Even they could hold property, they could compete, they could even walk around supposedly in certain games, topless. And then as another artifact of unintended consequences, that internal police force turned out when Greece began to experience foreign occupiers or would-be invaders like Xerxes or Darius, Darius or Xerxes. They fought very well against non-Greeks and non-Helots. So the whole Spartan mystique developed and evolved in ways nobody could have predicted from this weird idea that one of the few city-states conquered another whole area and, ins- and didn't quite enslave them like other people, but they made them serfs in perpetuity until yeah. the, my favorite man of antiquity, Epaminondas, freed them in the winter of 370 BC. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I was going to ask you, so how, I know that you're doing some work on Thebes for a new book that you're writing. How does Thebes compare to those it's two cities funny. or even Corinth? I well,
2: think. they were the big players. So, who were the players in the Greek world? By players, I mean who had the fleets, who had the armies, who had the biggest populations, and who do we associate with notable Athenian? So, fight on of Argos, or Lycurgus of Sparta, or Socrates of Athens, or Epaminondas of Thebes. Well, there's about five or six of them. There's Sparta versus Athens, the main players. And then there's the commercial and most ideally situated city-state, Corinth, not you know that old adage. The journey to Corinth doesn't benefit everybody. <laughs> you can end <laughs> up broke or mugged or getting a venereal disease of some sort, maybe if you go to Corinth, a wide open city. And then there's Argos, the traditional rival of Sparta and the Peloponnese. And these are all have ancient pedigrees. It's no accident that they have Mycenaean relics or archeological sites. So when the Mycenaean era, era collapsed during the dark ages, people rediscovered that, you know, these are the places that you hear myths being created to explain monumental architecture in the Peloponnese or Tholos teams at Thebes or something. And there's Thebes, and then, of course, there's Syracuse across the ocean, the biggest of all Greek city-states in Sicily. But Thebes is different. It's the smallest of the main players, probably only 35 40,000 people as residents. It's landlocked, and it's got this mystical mythology that goes way back in the Dark Ages. These myths are created to, again, make sense of, what little they know from the oral tradition or from artifacts about a monumental Mycenaean civilization's collapse. But think of it Seven Against Thebes, Aeschylus' play, the Oedipus trilogy Oedipus, so called Rex, or Oedipus the King, Oedipus at Colonia, and Antigone. And most of the famous heroes, Heracles, he's from Thebes. We have Euripides' Bacchae about King Pentheus and the Bacchae. Kongs and the rites up on Mount Cathyron So there were all these things that are happening. But unfortunately for Thebes, most of them were play acted. These myths were recombodulated by Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and maybe 50 other playwrights whose names we have but works we don't on the Athenian stage. So their view was a pretty bloody, right? Pentheus mm. gets his head cut off. Antigone commits suicide. Oedipus puts his eyes out. So Thebes has kind of a dark reputation as this old shadowy place where weird stuff happened. And it really influences a lot of Greece. But they're kind of they're, they're weird people. They're landlocked. They they have this big marshy lake, Lake Copias. They eat eels. They're just weird. And they have a mythical prestige to them. And then they finally are, become democratic late much later than their surrounding city-states. And they become so-called, they live in an area called Boeotia or Boeotia, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And they become very powerful for about 10 years under the Pamanandas. The most powerful state, they outpunch their rank. They become preeminent, even though they have a small population. They don't have a port accessible as Athens And then Alexander wipes them out, 335. He comes in and he says, you revolted. You're the spiritual leaders of Greece. You broke the deal that you were all subject now to my father. And I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to wipe you out to the last home. I'm going to kill everybody in battle. And the survivors, 30,000, must sell you into slavery. And the only thing that's going to be left are a few, you know, holy precincts. And the house of the poet Pindar, they're most famous for, you know, Pindar, the poet, and Hesiod, the poet.
1: Yeah. Was it a radical democracy like Athens?
2: No, it was in a constant state. cities use the word dynastia in a deprecatory fashion. So it start, It comes out of the Dark Ages as an oligarchy. And then as other countries broaden their oligarchies to what they call politeia or polities that are broad-based, pretty good governments, it's laggard. It laggards behind. And then by... the the Peloponnesian War, it has a, an oligarchy, kind of a narrow, but, but it has a revolution in 379 BC, and it becomes radically democratic under a Panama. Mm-hmm. But not the word thing that saves it. It doesn't have a lot of slaves because it's not a commercial power. It doesn't yeah. have a lot of industry. So it's still a rural, it's pretty tough customer when the Boeotian Confederacy is formed over a 50 year period, I think they crush, they devastate Orkomenos, They level Platea, they level Thespiae. I once been a you know a whole month I went over there and I took a map and, and I drove a little fiat car and I went to all of those uh, federated cities, Thespiae, Thisbe, Astra, home of Hesiod. It's a really weird place. Lavadia, if you go there to modern Lavadia, it's a very strange place. Yeah. kind of scary, but it's very beautiful, the Oracle of Trifonians.
1: Yeah. Was Corinth a very cosmopolitan place Yes, then? very that, so. That's what it sounded it like. Was, remember,
2: it was wiped out by Gaius Momias the same year as Carthage in 1946. Yeah. But it was the oldest in the sense that it had a series of tyrants, and it was located in a, a nexus where it controlled all passage six miles wide at the Isthmus. It controlled all the land passages from the Peloponnese to north and back. Yeah. And it did have eventually have a wall there to let mm-hmm. people in and out. And then more importantly, the east-west maritime traffic. So it was only six miles. And they had something called the Deolkos, the dragger Strip. So a ship would come from Asia Minor, unload as cargo, and either... Wagons would take it to another ship, or they would simply put little wheels on the ship and drag it across the Diocos six miles. And mm-hmm. then you saved about 150 miles by not having to go around the Peloponnese. You could go straight then into the Gulf of Corinth and then out the Gulf of Corinth toward westward, Italy. And then I think in the 1880s or 90s, the French dug a, a huge Canal and they didn't use locks. So when you look at it today, it's kind of scary. You look straight down, it's so deeply cut because the elevations were not the same. But they got away with not having a lock. And if anybody goes to Greece at all, there's daily or hourly little excursions you can go through the six mile. Yeah. And you can oh, see very cool. it's very nice to do that.
1: Yeah. Doesn't Corinth have some of the more spectacular, you know, archaeological dig? It does. Uh, digs, it, yeah.
2: Yeah. There's a temple to, as I remember, a temple to Zeus there. There's a Roman and a Greek theater there. You can see the Bema where St. Paul lectured. It's got the nicest, I think, the nicest on-site museum of any site in Greece. It's probably the best catalog preserved and tourist-friendly. That's primarily due to, in general, the American School of Classical Studies as one of its three digs, each foreign school, the French, uh, the British, et cetera, get a, a concession where they get to operate a dig uh, in conjunction with the Greek government. And Corinth is, along with the Athenian Agora, then that rotates, sometimes nemea et cetera. But Corinth was uh, traditionally for a hundred years excavated by the Americans. And Sherman Williams painter, a wonderful man named Charles Williams and Nancy Bukitis, they were the, when I was there, they co ran the excavations. They did a wonderful job of writing about it in the American School publication Hesper. But then it was required for every member of the American School of Classical Studies in the spring to excavate in Corinth. And I excavated there in the summer, uh, the late spring of 1979. It was so hot that I had developed a kidney stone. I finally had to be two months later. It wouldn't pass. I flew home because it was so hot there. Yeah. We were excavating be- three of us there. It was very uh, it was very interesting and instructive to learn archaeology. I'd have notebooks. You had a catalog pottery. You had to learn architecture. I'd also had a course earlier. My first time I went to Greece with William Dinsmore Jr., who, taught us a lot about Greek architecture.
1: You know, now that you're mentioning archaeology, I've always wondered because I know at the, and this is way off from Greece, it's on Crete, obviously, but the Minoan site, they always complain about what Arthur Evans did there. Do you know what the specific complaints are about his? Uh,
2: He's the founder of modern archaeology. He discovered a earlier civilization in Crete, that we know was in Thera and other places. We know that it was not dated the Mycenaean Greeks. We know later from the decipherment of Linear B that its script, Linear A, is not the same. In other words, Linear B was Greek. The Mycenaeans were Greeks. Linear A is some type of Semitic languages it's language, but we don't have enough examples on clay tablets. And we know that this earthquake that destroyed Minoan civilization in Thera must have had a deliric Deleterious effect on Crete because shortly after the Mycenaeans came down and took it over and they Xeroxed a lot of the palatial customs, the linear aid tablets, and they adopted it to their own purposes on the mainland and they ran it in Crete. But that original civilization was found by Sir Arthur Evan, mostly near Heraklion at the famous Knossos site, but also at Phaistos and Hagia Triada. There's about three or four major sites. But what he did was he spent his entire life and his fortune as an early archaeologist restoring what he thought it looked like. So he would excavate a pillar and he'd find 10 percent of it. He would reconstruct the pillar. And he did that on the basis of mythological descriptions of King Minos. And he really believed these were accurate, that there was a King Minos, there was a Minotaur. And then more importantly, he had frescoes where the people, Cretan women, were shown inside a palace so he could see the structure. So if you go to Knossos, he reconstructed. If you're a purist and an archaeologist, you say, well, he reconstructed it in the wrong way. We know now that portico, that bridge, that walkway is not right. Yeah. And if you're a tourist, you don't really care. You just think this is gives me a sense of what the Minoans are. And then secondly, We have from his notebooks descriptions of he was trying to decipher this Linear A, and people didn't understand that it was mud brick that had been baked. And so there were several dozen, I can't remember the exact number, of Linear A tablets that were inadequately stored. And when rains came, they melted. They were destroyed. So people today have said, had he known what we know as archaeological scientific, scholars, we could have excavated that on according to modern principles, and we might have had a better chance of deciphering than your A, or yeah. we could do what we did at Phaistos and show things what it could be, or what we see at Thera. But you have to judge people on some part on the mores of the time, and the bottom line was he was a man who devoted his entire life going out into what a really wild place Crete was in those times and suffered a lot out in the field. And he did what he thought he could do to promote the study of antiquity.
1: Yeah. And he sure did a lot for that. That's for sure. All right. So let's go ahead and take a moment for some messages and come right back. And speaking of education, we're going to talk a little bit about the traditional liberal education. We'll be right back. Welcome back everybody. Yeah, so Victor, this is something that interests me. I definitely have a passion for education system and a good education. And so I thought I would ask you today because we're always talking about a you know what education is not today and the indoctrination is not teaching contemplation but programming people instead. And we refer to this Old time liberal education, not liberal as we see it today. And my word for it is a humanist education. I was wondering if you could give us a description of what a good humanist education would be. And then what's the value of it? Like, what does it do for a student?
2: Well, remember that humane letters are liberty, libertas in Latin. It means not the same as Freiheit in German. It means liberty within the context of sophisticated government or civilization. So the idea was you were going to have a university system, and it grew up out of medieval scholasticism. And then during the Renaissance and the age and on in the Enlightenment, it was the idea that you were going to have centers of learning. And originally they had two purposes. Number one, to preserve classical antiquity. They had understood that during the Dark Ages, the advances in science and astronomy and chemistry and literature and history had been lost. But those texts were still there and they could rebirth or have a renaissance, again, if there were sinners that were protected them. It took over the work of the medieval church that was primarily interested in copying manuscripts to ensure religious doctrine or to use pagan philosophers like Aristotle to enhance understanding of Christianity. But then when these universities grew up at Bologna and Pisa and Paris or Oxford or Cambridge, then these became enlightenment areas. And all the enlightenment meant was you were going to explain natural phenomenon, not necessarily through custom or tradition or religion or superstition. And you were free to do that. So if you thought that, you know, walking under a ladder didn't mean you were doomed, or if you saw that you didn't believe that God was responsible for an eclipse, or when you have pus on your hand, it wasn't because something you did wrong. That inquiry was unfettered supposedly by religious dogma. But the early Renaissance and probably the early Enlightenment was a way of elucidating faith in Christianity. By that, I mean they understood that not all elements of human experience were explicable by pure ratio, unless you were an atheist and a Jacobin in France, for example, or a nihilist. By that, they meant this is the tools that we have developed, philosophy, rhetoric, literature, history, physics, math, metaphysics. And within these fields, we can progress and work on as aristotle said the work of younger older each generation builds upon the work of the other and we can find answers to things and some of them are going to be manifested in scientific progress but there are elements that will always remain mysterious why did that person die this person didn't when there was a you know an accident why is this person born with a birth defect when her parents were noble, and this person who was a rogue and a convict had a perfectly formed child. Those are the mysteries that call in religious experience and require faith and belief. And so, there wasn't at odds necessarily completely to the medieval church, but as it came out of the Enlightenment, and that is these formal disciplines were filtering into society at large. And they began to have universities where people actually went there to the universities in large numbers. Originally, again, to elucidate or to hone their religious understanding of the Old and New Testaments, but later to become liberally educated. What did that mean? This is a Wendy answering your question. It meant two things. Number one, the university was going to teach people an inductive method. And by that is You were going to look at the world around you and then empirically catalog exempla exempla and examples, and you were going to form a conclusion about them. You were not going to be deductive. You don't just say, all ducks have green feathers. And then when you see a duck with yellow or white or whatever, green, you say, oh, he's not a duck because he's not all green. No, what you do is you say there's a mallard duck or there's a wood duck and they all have different colors. Then inductive, you say the family of ducks can be multicolored. See the difference? You use the examples and that teaches everybody. The idea was that if you teach people how to be inductive, when you read literature, you don't necessarily identify with somebody that looks like you or you like. You try to suspend prejudicial thought and just analyze the traits of the character and what the novelist is trying to do. And then dispassionately, you analyze the text. You don't deconstruct it by saying, I want to go into every text, Faulkner or Hemingway novel and find out who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed, and then critique the author for Insidiously revealing his power master. That's anti enlightenment. That's anti inductive. The second thing that liberal education was supposed to do is because life is short and art is long. There's so many things to study, and, and you're so brief. You can't just put your head in a book your whole life. You have to be selective. You only have a choice. So there's certain classics texts, doesn't mean they're older. Class is just a word for a fleet in Roman, it means select. And it means that certain things pass the popular muster across time and space. So, a group of people who have spent their entire life, they've given up normal lives. I mean, they're not, they don't know how to fix their car. They don't know how to wire their house. They do not know if you want to gas, many of them are helpless. But you get them on Shakespeare and they can say, you should all know Macbeth. You get them on Sophocles and they say, I love the Philictides, but read the Antigone. You get them on Euripides, and they said, you know, the Andromeda is kind of a weird play, but, you know, you better read the Bacchae or the Medea. So, this group of scholars, and same thing with science, they selected a canonical group of text. And the idea was, in literature, in philosophy, and then they also had areas of study, architecture. They came up with this idea that every student that was liberally educated would have a referent a referent. So they would could say, you know what? Life's not fair, but I'm not a narcissist and I don't think I'm the only one who suffered. I remember how Antigone was a noble person and out of jealousy and spite, they destroyed her, even though she was the moral superior to men. So even though I'm a woman and I'm being oppressed, I understand that there are certain people who have been here before and I can learn from. Or when they read Homer's Iliad, they said, you know, God, the race doesn't go to the swift, does it? Achilles is the best warrior. He kills the most Trojans. He gets the most loot. And guess what? They take it away from him. And Agamemnon and his incompetent brother Menelaus are not nearly the warriors, but they got all the power. And then he's so mad, he's going to go pow. I'm not going to play with this marble game with you guys. It's rigged. I'm taking my marbles home. You take your marbles home and Patroclus gets killed. And there's consequences to playing the wounded fawn. So he has to go back out in the arena and he kills Hector. And then he's going to get so angry that he's going to desecrate the body. But then what does that do? When you just mix Priam and Andromache and all these noble Trojans, what's the purpose of mutilating a corpse? Because Hector did that to Pythagoras. So there's a learning and there's an evolutionary idea, of morality and all of this. So you read these canonical texts, you have these reference for the rest of your life. You combine that with the inductive method and then you unleash these people into a society and they're capable of being supposedly better plumbers, better truck drivers, even if you, you know, you don't need a BA, you can do it online and that's why I have a lot of confidence in this new online instruction. And, you know, during the 50s, it was that post-war idealism. So everybody, were out where we lived in the country. There was this guy called the Great Books Peddler. <laughs> he was some like <laughs> failed high school teacher. who's wonderful. He came in and said, Mr. and Mrs. Hanson, do you want your children to be enlightened and liberally educated? And I go, what the? Well, here, don't worry. We have something called the world book series for $4 a month. (laughs) Your children can be scholars at home. And then they can gravitate to the great books of the Western world. And here they are. And for your young ones, the beginners, there's something called, what was it called? Child craft book. It was a red version. Child craft. I don't know what it was, but it was a watered down world book. And then they said, and, you know, although I don't sell the encyclopedia of Otanaka, it would be good for you to have reference at a little more And my parents ended up, I remember my dad would say, hmm, $4 here, $3 here. We had our whole house was full of these self-improvement series. They were wonderful. And so that's what I, I would read them all the time. Find My dad said, are you ever going to have a cigarette? Are you ever going to have a drink? Are you ever going to go out and play sports, <laughs> be a normal kid? Because I've worked you to death. And when you work, you don't have a normal life. You got to date. date. You got to enjoy life. You're just a sourpuss reading with your head in those books. Come on, your brother doesn't do that. He's normal, he's successful. You're, he was really trying to think. And I remember when he goes, well, Why did I buy all these books? <laughs> so it was a good, it was a, that was what liberal education was supposed to be. And look what we did with it. We created this self-educated and formally educated, wonderful centers of learning. We had this conversation 50 years ago, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they'd still had, I mean, they had a lot of problems. And when the civil rights movement came The same idea was that we were, and I was imbued with it because when I started at Cal State Fresno in 1984, I was, had this missionary zeal. I looked at my students. I said, they're 50% Mexican-American. They're 20% children of the Oklahoma, as I said, diaspora. There's a lot of Southeast Asians from Cambodia. This is wonderful. These guys are, there's going to be so much innate talent here. And there has been so little opportunity for exposure. I'm going to do this. And I did that for 20 years. And tried to give everybody a liberal inductive education. And I don't know if it failed or not. The program is still there.
1: But, yeah, you uh, really it, built a huge program there. That was a very successful program.
2: I, I don't know. I paid a, a familial price, you know, getting up at six in the morning and coming home at eight at night and, you know, your head trying to publish when you're teaching some years five classes a semester, <laughs> 10 a year, and different, or five different preps. Yeah. And anyway, but that was the idea. And it's really sad that we have a deductive education now. It's not enlightenment. It's not renaissance. You go to a Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and when you take your general education, you start with the idea, we're going to prove that the United States is racist in this class. We're going to tell you that Chinese civilization is better than Western civilization. And We're going to do this because you've been brainwashed. Well, they weren't brainwashed. If you read Will Durant or all these popular accounts, they're very fair in assessing Indian or Chinese contributions to the West. They're Westerners, so they concentrate on the West, but they're not exclusionary. That's a myth that the left has created. In any case... It's died now, so there is no free speech in the university. There is no inductive education. A student knows that they cannot say certain things. They can't say that they identify with a particular character if it's politically incorrect. And they don't have a lot of reference because they take these courses with a dash studies. Environmental studies, Asian American studies, black studies, women's studies, leisure studies, peace studies.
1: They're and then just... they can't study certain things either. No, like you're can't. not gonna. I mean, how many colleges or universities have a history of warfare? I mean, none, that's just none. Not, I had I two
2: even in high school. I mean, I had two wonderful teachers, a Mr. Hodges, who was a history teacher. And Mrs. Hearn took the literature and poor agrarian Selma. I remember Mrs. Hearn said, we're going to read the great books. Even had this series of great books we read. We read Chekhov. We read the Aeneid. We read Dickens, and then we would get these words, and she said, well, how are you going to understand that? You need to get your little vocabulary list. So, you'd write all the words you didn't know, and then I said to her, well, I have to keep flipping. She goes, well, then you got to get index cards and make little vocabulary cards to build your vocabulary. And then she would correct her grammar, diagram sentences. And then Mr. Hodges was always, we will do no multiple choice. I think multiple choice, actually. I've never given a multiple choice test in my entire life. I always looked down on them. I was snobby. I said, they're just robotic. You should put them through a scantron. I now regret that because I realize that you can BS in these modern essays more than you can <laughs> on a, uh, they're harder choice. to grade. Yeah. You can be a very <laughs> fluent, brilliant rhetorician and say nothing and be more impressive than you get on a multiple choice. I really recognized that when I had my son was at Cal State Fresno and he took these history classes and they were, gosh, they were taught by my colleagues. I'm not in the, I was in the foreign language, but they were scantron. I thought I'd always made fun of them, but they had things like the constitution was ratified in 1776, 1783, 1770, 1787, and then you had to know something, you know what I mean? And yeah, and Lincoln's cabinet was da 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 no nah, and they gave names, whereas you write an essay which is important to hone those skills. yeah, but they got a wonderful education doing that. He did and then I had two children that went to the University of California and they did essay work at the so-called higher level, but it wasn't higher level. I think the Cal State Fresno history program that my son took was comparable to the UC campuses that my two daughters went to.
1: Yeah. Well, if you run into anybody from Europe, you usually find that they have, I think it's just simply better writing because I think in their K to 12, whatever they call it, but their K to 12, they really make them do things like diagram sentences and they're very, you know, going to teach them grammar one. And I don't think in our K to 12, they teach them grammar. No, they Not don't. Like we we,
2: we diagram sentences. I had Mrs. Wilson, my eighth grade English teacher, she would diagram a sentence. And she was, I think about her now, she was kind of a bulldog looking person and students didn't like her because she bit you almost if you were incorrect. Yeah. You didn't, your subject and verb didn't agree, but she gave us education, which brings up a final point summation is that the point of this was Socratic. And I don't mean Socratic in the sense of a dialogue back and forth, all that happened, but a psych that I am smart because I know what I don't know. And it was the idea that you're introducing people to this wide world of knowledge. And all you're doing is giving them the skills, the vocabulary skills, the inductive methodology, as I said, the reference, and then they can function in society. But if they want to satiate their curiosities, they now have the tools of how to go to a library, how to read, how to interpret a text, how to understand what's important in a history, how to say to themselves, this is really important to have a critical relationship with the author. So when you read Herodotus or you read Thucydides or you read Xenophon, you just don't read it. You say, this author lived in a particular time, has a particular emphasis. And why is he mentioning the Melian Dialogues when he doesn't mention the Megarian Decree? So, you become interactive with the author and you can assess them on uh, meritocratic or or at least disinterested points rather than just emotion. And that's very important. And out of that comes you're humble because you say, oh my God, I've read one play of Aristophanes in Greek, but there's 11 of those suckers. Or, wow, I've read three Euripidean plays, but my God, there's 19 of them. Or I've read the first book of Gibbon's history, but it goes all the way into the Byzantine period in 1453. So contrast that today with these people know nothing, these students. All they're taught about is who is a victim and who's a victimizer and who in the past was a bad person, how you can condemn them, shout them out, and all of these contemporary issues that have no basis in fundamental knowledge. If they want to study transgenderism, read the satiricon. Look at the etymology of transvestin. What does it mean in Latin? And they don't, and because they don't, they're arrogant. So arrogant is the twin of ignorance. Arrogance is. If you are not ignorant, you're humble. If you're ignorant, you are arrogant. When you look at those pictures of those uh, students that, was it Christakis, the Yale professor, they got around her and they screamed and yelled at her about Mm -hmm. five years ago during Halloween over a costume. Oh, yeah. Or they went into the Yale Law School and shouted down a speaker. Or you see the people at Middlebury that they are the most arrogant, ignorant, ignorant, Self righteous, but sadly limited people. And that's because they're not educated. And this is the great crime of higher education. They take a quarter million dollars from families, they put families in debt. And then when they get that bachelor's degree, it is no certification or even suggestion that that person has reference to the learned world or is inductive. It's just the opposite. That's why all of you people out there that are not in college, I'm not encouraging you not to go to college and you're self-motivated and you're listening to internet lectures and you're enrolling for online classes and you're just reading and you're consulting with people, even if you have to pay for tutors, that is something that is our vocational training. You're learning these skills. Don't ever be intimidated by these modern universities. They're not universities anymore at all. They're just part of the progressive agenda and they're political. They're sort of like communist uh, universities in the 1930s, or maybe national socialist universities in the late 1930s.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Victor, very much. I think we're going to call it a day here. And shut um, Victor up. No, not at all. That was a good no call, I, I to, felt... call to arms for education. I liked it.
2: Okay, everybody, pick up the text of the Bacchae or the Antigone and see what
1: you think. All right. Thank you very much. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off.
2: Bye, everybody.
1: Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to
2: you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head Broadcasting Weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the Dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore,